Welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa. We have got a lineup of national and international interest for you today. First, though, thanks to our anchor sponsor, Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Central Iowa's premier good food store. Gateway brings together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Marketing Cafe. All right, so later in the program, we'll be talking with uh, Dr. Mark Allen Derry about salt water creeping up the Mississippi River, putting New Orleans drinking water at risk. We'll also talk with Jeffrey Weiss about how the U.S. stacks up against other nations in terms of the Democracy Index. And uh, no, it's not just Trump that's taken our democracy to a new low, uh, though he certainly gave civil discourse another blow here in Iowa last week uh, when he... <laughs> he it's, it's like a child here. He insulted two of his political opponents, saying that Ron DeSantis is, quote, like a really injured falling bird. Uh, and then even worse, calling Nikki Haley a bird brain. Um, Trump then sent Haley a birdcage and bird food at her hotel room. I am not making, I, I wish I could tell you this was an episode of The Onion, for real. Okay, so then Kathy Burns and I will be talking about uh, the, our monthly garden Q&A. And a, finally, a quick shout out to the Des Moines Irish Session for providing our bumper music. If you're in the Des Moines area, there's an open session happening somewhere every Tuesday and occasionally other nights as well. All right, so this first segment of our program uh, will be of specific interest to my local audience. But if you are concerned about the climate impact of air travel and the fiscal impact to taxpayers who are on the hook for big government spending projects, this discussion is for you. And if you're still wondering whether climate change is real, oh, come on, Gary, Frank, other regulars in my audience who still don't believe, yeah, the data is in. So globally, this summer, the summer of 2023, was the hottest on record. You know, given the direction we're heading, deeper into even more extreme global warming, it's more accurate to say that this summer, the summer of 2023, was possibly the coolest summer any of us will ever enjoy. So that said, according to Michael Mann and other, other leading climate scientists, it is still not too late to prevent the worst impacts from happening. And by worst impacts, we mean extinction, which is on the table. All right, let's be honest. So obviously we need these big coordinated international efforts to really make things happen, but, but we all need to do something. And if you live in Polk County, Iowa, I've got the perfect climate action for you. And it's an easy one. Take a close look at the proposed $350 million bond issue. That's on the ballot on November 7th, along with the city elections, school board elections. Uh, if it passes, it will greatly expand air travel at the Des Moines International Airport. So a little sidebar there, by the way, for those Des Moines International Airport. I always get a kick out of that because, you know, we don't have any flights to Canada. Um, but the airport was renamed the Des Moines International Airport back in 1986 to acknowledge that the, uh, there was a U.S. Customs Service office at the airport. I know, and it also makes us sound really cool and cosmopolitan and all that. Yeah, anyway, it's, it's kind of a joke. But... Um, <laughs> so anyway, so, well, you know, all right, so why is this vote a climate vote? Why is it a climate issue? Well, because along with carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases and the water vapor trails that are produced by airplanes, air travel is responsible for about 5% of global warming. Now, that's huge. Think of all the different sectors of our economy, of our, of our society, of, of the way we live. 5% from one human activity is big. 
Now, I, you know, in doing some research for this, um, this program, I, I came across a website called Flight Free. Didn't know about this, but good information. You can plug in your data of where you're going to come from, where you want to go, and they'll tell you what your, what your carbon impact is going to be. So, okay, a round trip from Des Moines, say, to Washington, D.C., about 1,800 miles. And uh, that would emit, that, that emits about half a metric ton of CO2 per passenger. If you were able to avoid that trip, uh, instead of, um, you know, maybe zooming or driving or stay home, um, that would be as climate friendly as carpooling for six months. Now, that one trip is, is more, it's more greenhouse gas emissions than 89 million poor people across the world. One trip, Des Moines to D.C., more than 89 million people around the world. Crazy. So you could also, or if there was an electric train circum, you know, circumnavigating the world, you could travel that 2.2 times around the world to have the same carbon emissions as you would on this one flight to D.C. from Des Moines. One last thing from this flight-free website. The emissions of one passenger uh, melt 16.8 square feet of Arctic sea ice. So... Think about that when you're flying along. Now, I, again, I, I almost never fly except to visit family, and my family is scattered all around, you know, four different places, between 1,300 and 4,000 miles away. Now, I never drive to the 4,000-mile one, but Kathy and I do often drive to some of the other visits we need to do. But uh, this year, you know, I do have to fly, and this year I, I did, I flew more often than, than usual, I think like three trips. So the last trip, there was one person in front of me at TSA. One person. That's it. Uh, every previous trip, this year and every year before, I, you know, I spent five or ten minutes in the TSA line. So, you know, when I hear people making noise about, well, you know, we need to expand the airport, it's a problem. Well, it's not a problem now, as far as I can tell. Uh, again, flights are always on time. We're close to it. Arrive on time. And there's hardly any wait at all. So, I think the honest truth is, it's not about you know, current problems. It's about expanding, building bigger to attract more air travel. And when you attract more air travel, you have more climate change. So what amazes me, really, I mean, this is what astounds me about the human condition. You know, people in governments, people and those in governments, you know, get climate change. And yet it's those in government and business that are pushing this proposal forward. So, you know, for example, the city of Des Moines, and I quote uh, from their website, quote, aims to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 45% between 2010 and 2030 and achieve net zero emissions by 2050. Well, that's great. But how does that, how does expanding an airport fit into that plan? Even more directly, the, the City of Des Moines Sustainability Report says, and again I quote, the City of Des Moines recognizes that greenhouse gas emissions from human activity are catalyzing profound climate change across the city and metro region, the consequences of which pose substantial risks to the future health, well-being, and prosperity of our community. Excellent. Okay, and even better, Polk County's Board of Supervisors commits to reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 90% by 2040. And yet, they're the government entity pushing the bond issue, and they voted unanimously to do that. So, oh, and by the way, I should say that the, the airport itself has no stand on climate change. In fact, uh, this is kind of funny. When you, when you Google search uh, Des Moines Airport Global Warming or Des Moines Airport Climate Change, here's what comes up. 
And I quote, At Des Moines International Airport, the summers are warm, humid and wet. The winters are freezing, snowy and windy. And it's partly cloudy year-round. I kid you not, that's the closest you can come to anything about climate change from a Google search about the Des Moines Airport. Now, <laughs> I, I spoke with the airport's executive director, Kevin Foley. Great guy. I mean, I, Kevin and I, go, we go back a ways. Years ago, in fact, he responded very positively to a concern I had about the lack of adequate bicycle parking at the airport. But, you know, regarding taking action to address climate change, you know, Kevin told me this week that the airport hopes to purchase electric shuttle buses. And there's also discussion about reducing the amount of energy being used to heat and cool the airport's terminals. And, okay, that's great. That's nice. You know, but again, at a time when climate scientists are frantically waving their arms and shouting at us, saying we have to move away from fossil fuels now, those are baby steps. You know, I, again, digging around, there was a letter, um, just back in 2015, a letter to the Des Moines Register by Robert Fisher, uh, who sums it up really, really well. Uh, quote, 2014 has gone down as the world's hottest year in recorded history. Well, we've crashed those records. Uh, due to humanity's relentless burning of fossil fuels. Yet in the same year, the Iowa Department of Transportation announced plans to widen long stretches of the state's interstate highway system to six lanes, and the Des Moines Airport wants to spend $800 million on a terminal expansion. If completed, both of these projects would significantly increase the amount of carbon sent into the atmosphere. End of letter. Um, I couldn't, I mean, that, that, was, that was relevant nine years ago. It's still even more relevant. You know, a lot of us, you know, and unfortunately, a lot of, I'd say the majority of elected officials, they only see a healthy economy through the lens of what I call the endless growth economy. Bigger is better, more is essential. And my favorite quote from city managers and planners, if you don't grow, you die. You know, well, climate change is proving the, the endless growth economy to be a big lie. You know, bigger is not better. More and more and more is the highway to disaster. If you don't grow, you die, really? If you don't grow, you die? Well, you know, as a philosophy of urban growth and economic development, that is so obviously flawed, it astounds me that it receives any credence at all. You know, I, I, let's look at, take an organic comparison, okay? Look at the human body. You know, you and I don't physically grow uh, until we die, okay? If we did, uh, you know, we'd be 600 pounds and dead at age 40, right? Uh, any physical expansion beyond 19 years of age, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, we humans can continue to grow in other ways, intellectually, spiritually, emotionally. You know, most of us understand this. So again, why is it so hard for community leaders, you know, politicians, uh, businessmen, businesswomen, academicians, the media? Why is it so hard for for folks to, to take action consistent with that truth. I, I, it's, it's kind of, um, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. And I would say, really, it's partly because of, I'm going to throw a big word at you here, compartmentalization. I don't even know if that's a real word, but I like it. And you know what I mean. So, <laughs> you know, and, and again, I look at my conversation with, uh, with Kevin Foley, who said to me, you know, and this really stuck with me, Quote, we'll do anything we can to reduce our climate impact, providing it's not a huge expense. You know, so Kevin is focused on the airport. He may like train travel, but he's the airport guy. And similarly, Jay Byers, another guy I like a lot, 
He's the head of the Chamber of Commerce, the Des Moines Partnership. He sees everything through the eyes of the status quo business growth and development person he is. So two years ago, in a business record story about adding Amtrak service to Central Iowa, Jay said, while Des Moines and Iowa continue to keep passenger rail service on track, nice pun, Jay, uh, there are still a lot of shorter-term transportation needs that need to be need to remain a priority. We have uh, we have a really great opportunity to continue to move forward and complete our goal and objective of a new airport terminal. And the same thing with the big-time investments we need to continue to make in our roads and bridges. You know, so essentially, they're going to keep doing what they've been doing. You know, damn the torpedoes. And in this, this example, the climate change torpedo. Bigger airports, wider highways, more cars, more trucks, more airplane travel. That's where the money is. That's how it's always been done. That's what we're going to keep doing. You know, and in case people have forgotten, Iowa was on target to get Amtrak service. You know, when Chet Culver was governor, the state received $53 million bucks toward expanding Amtrak from, from Chicago through Des Moines to Omaha. That came from the federal government. Uh, all the Iowa legislature had to do was to match that $53 million with $20.6 million. I know $20.6 million sounds like a lot to us. It's chump change to the Iowa state budget. Okay, But the powerful lobby, the, the, the big lobby, the, the road lobby, was the one that didn't want that. And so they pushed Governor Branstead to you know, not appropriate that money. And instead, he chose to send $53 million back to Washington, D.C. We lost that money. So here's my question. You know, if, if Polk County can now come up with $350 million to expand the airport, why didn't it pony up $20.6 million for Amtrak back in 2010? If the state wouldn't do it, the county could have done it, or any, any, any number of governmental entities could have done it. And if they had done it, we probably, would have, we probably would have rail service in Des Moines today. And there might be a lot less talk, or maybe no talk, about expanding the airport. So there's more to this too, folks. There's fiscal considerations. Um, you know, public debt, that's a huge problem. So it's private debt, of course. But you know, government should run as much as possible on a pay-as-you-go approach. I may be in a minority on that. Uh, yeah, there are certain times when debt makes sense, minimal, but this is huge. $350 million is huge. You know, and the federal government is the worst example. And, you know, again, Polk County's budget is in pretty good shape, but still, that's a lot of money. And one has to be asking oneself questions about whether it makes sense to take on that kind of debt. And when you do take on that kind of debt, you know, you, I mean, there's a, I mean the Polk County's bond rating is AAA, there's a real risk of it dropping to double A, uh, and that has financial impacts for the taxpayers. Also, I say there's a lot of money involved. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of money involved with this. Five million additional money from the county from the uh, community betterment grants. That that's a pool that usually funds local nonprofit initiatives. Well, there's five five million less for those purposes. There's ten million from the city of Des Moines, eight point six million from other cities in the area. And $28 million from what's called the Airport Improvement Program, discretionary grant. Now, I guess that could have been used for electric shuttles, maybe, but uh, no. Uh, so, you know, what else could have been done with all this public money? You know, improved bus service, reducing property taxes, filling potholes, um, you know, or maybe helping to make a down payment on Amtrak service. So it's a big chunk of money. And uh, the whole price tag is $577 million. But there's more. The eventual price tag, when they keep building on to the, the, uh, the, the first phase, over $700 million. 
I won't be surprised if it went up to a billion dollars at some point. Anyway, folks, it's um, something to think about. If you're in central Iowa, Polk County specifically, it's on the ballot this coming November 7th. Um, that's my take. Happy to hear your opinions about it as well. Hey, uh, we got to take a short break. When we come back, um, Jeffrey Weiss is going to join me. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Democracy Index and how Polk County rates, Polk County, how the U.S. rates around the world. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Thanks to our sponsors and partners, including the Catholic Peace Ministry, an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese, CPM focuses on nuclear disarmament, the need for diplomacy in Ukraine, and ending the permanent war economy. Learn more at catholicpeacemistry.org. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis. Owner Mark Klipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. I would like to now welcome to the program Jeffrey Weiss. Jeffrey, how are you? I'm doing well, Ed. Thank you. So we're going to talk about a bunch of things. I mean, Jeffrey is uh, one of our local wizards when it comes to foreign policy, in my opinion, and actually in a lot of people's opinions. You have really taken the time to, to understand what's going on in the world. And we often talk about military-related stuff, but how about other other ways of measuring how we're doing in the U.S. relevant to the rest of the world. Uh, you know, one, one concern that we have is, a, uh, is how the democracy index applies, and that's a, a creature of the U.N., I believe. Or? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a, a number of different entities uh, have different ways of measuring democracy, but we can definitely talk about some of them, too, and how the United States ranks on a, on a global basis. And we're not doing great. <laughs> no, it's, it's sad. Um, well, you know, the, the, the whole world right now is, isn't is doing as well as there was this time called the Arab Spring, which sure. started very springy. Um, about <laughs> In ten, Egypt. Yes. And then Tunisia, yeah, and Libya. Abs yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, years ago, and then there was this idea that, you know, that there was this global turn. Um, and now there's been a, a sharp turn back. There's out of the 8 billion people in the world, most estimates are about five and a half billion or close to six billion are living in what are called um, autocracies or um, illiberal democracies. And the United States 
just starting off struggles because uh, Michael Gallagher just did a study, a political scientist, and out of 140 nation states prominent that he looked at, the United States is one of only 24 countries in the world that has a two-party or a one-party state. So already, you know, we struggle with that reality that, that two-party or one-party states are rare in the world. But just, isn't there a big difference? I mean, a one-party state, that's obviously codenamed for monarchy or dictatorship. Mm -hmm. But two parties, I mean, that seems like a very far cry from a one-party state. Uh, well, if, 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 if the two parties are to some extent um, two wings of the same party, as Julius Nair of Africa famously said about the United States, then it's less so, and it's still less so, considering that there's just 24 of those countries and that the overwhelming majority of countries in the world allow more political parties to have representation. I mean, even Costa Rica, which is easily the most successful and democratic presidential republic in the world, which is our form of government, they have a unicameral legislature with proportional representation voting. In fact, more and more countries in South America are becoming more democratic than the United States because not only have the three that had the Electoral College abolished it, so the United States stands alone there. Really? We're the only country left among the... Yes, yes. Every, every, every other country, in, the other countries of the world that have a presidential republic, that elect their head of government and head of state, known as a president, have a national popular vote. And most of those countries today are even more democratic because they have majority voting. So countries in South, more countries in South America now, more countries in Europe that have presidential republics or semi-presidential republics have a runoff election like France does, where a number of candidates come forward and you have to get a 50% vote. Otherwise, if no candidate gets 50%, the top two graduate to the next tier and then there's a vote for the two of them, which was, you know, for example, a few years ago, Macron and Marine Le Pen in France. That is more normal now in not only countries in Europe, the very few that have elected presidents, because most of them are parliamentary, but that's even more common now in South American countries. Mm. All of which, by the way, when you look at South America, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Argentina, election day is Sunday. Election day is on a weekend. So, you know... But what about church? Well, you go to church in the morning and you still have all day oh, okay. to vote. Okay. You know? <laughs> and yes, there, there's an evangelical wave that's, that's hitting South America, of course, too. So let me... Let me that, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, what about some of the other metrics of, uh, of indicating, indicating yeah. a democracy, like, like a literacy? I mean, right now we've seen a huge rise in this country of, uh, of people raging against books they don't like. Mm -hmm. uh, book ban. We got, we've got one here in, in Iowa. Yeah. Uh, nobody knows exactly what it means because the state refuses to clarify it. Yeah. Uh, so you have some some school districts going off the rails in terms of mm -hmm. banning huge numbers of books. Mm -hmm. Others kind of going, eh, whatever. Yeah. Um, but uh, all yeah. kind of nervous about it. How, how do uh, how do we yeah. rate in terms of other countries yeah. and and, and okay. freedom of expression and books being banned? Okay. Well, let me, let me answer that a couple ways. Okay. Um, I, I can't give you anything right away on literacy because um, it's not coming to me. But being that I teach in the social sciences, academic freedom is something that is important. <laughs> yeah, sure, to you personally. <laughs> and, and there's an organization called Reporters Without Borders that is, is very well respected that 
puts the United States at 79th in the world for academic freedom, right between South Africa and Kenya. Academic freedom or journalistic freedom? Um, well, we, when we talk about journalistic freedom, uh, the United States, I have it right here, is we have it as 45th on the list. And that was done by also Reporters Without, Port Without Borders for um, academic freedom, or I mean, uh, press freedom. The United States gets knocked down there for um, sort of corporate monopoly, you know, just a, a few companies. What we call the mainstream media owned by just a handful of, of corporations. Absolutely. Right. And, and the decline in local journalism and also the attacks on the press. Sure. You know, not only... Well, what we, what we saw in Kansas recently, uh, at least there's Absolutely. some pushback against that. Yeah, there is. But, but you know, you still have leading political candidates who, who who say that the press is the enemy of the people, which is, you know, you can take sure. that rhetoric historically a lot of interesting sure, places. I, I, I hear it on um, WHO radio all the time. Yeah, yeah, and that's, you know, it's sort of, I mean, well, you can study Stalin's rhetoric. So I want to, back to academic have, freedom. Time. But yeah, so, yeah. So you've got, um, you, you were 79th in the world? Yeah, more states are allowing students to tape their professors, le their lectures, without asking them. You used to have to ask for consent. Um, there are right-wing groups that are putting together hit lists of professors. Um, Fox News has routinely, over the years, targeted professors with a lot of profanity on the air, and then then therein after comes well, the, death threats. The, well, the political right argues, argues that, that uh, colleges and universities are way too liberal. Well, the the the... the, the what there's a couple of things that why universities are often threatening is to 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 people on the right. Um, for one, that universities and colleges have a commitment to equality, um, and people on the right or the far right right have an us against them ideology that on its basis rejects the idea of equality. So already hmm. there's going to be a problem. The other problem is that universities and colleges are based in science. They left the 18th century. You know, they got out of the 18th century. Well, you're saying they, there was no good went, science went, back in the 18th century? Well, they went, they got through the Enlightenment, okay? <laughs> and, and they used the five-step scientific method. Um, and therefore, if you have theories like, you know, racial eugenics and things like that, that's not good science. And so that kind of thing isn't welcome on college campuses because what is welcome on college campuses are things that involve identifying a problem, asking a problem, uh, question, writing a hypothesis, testing it, and doing research. So if you, if you are a party around the world that peddles misinformation and lies, um, you know, and especially appeals to people's emotions with a sort of an us against them, you know, everything will be all right if we can just confront these people who are okay, not so, your rivals, but your enemies. So I know you're just Then universities and colleges would be sure. considered, and it's, we're seeing it all over the world in Hungary, uh, we're seeing it in Turkey. We're seeing attacks on, on universities. Um, and yeah, and we're also seeing it, um, some of that in the United States too. So uh, I, I assume mm -hmm. other countries like Russia, China, you'd see, uh, you'd see a comparable suppression of academic freedom? Yes, and in fact, I mean, this is kind of the love affair that we have right now with the right wing um, in the United States and, you know, Viktor Orban and his in Hungary. party in Hungary and also Vladimir Putin, because the, um, the attacks against especially vulnerable minority populations um, are something that we're seeing um, 
in a number of these countries. So it's not surprising, for example, that, that, that Fox News would endorse Hungary as a model for what the United States should be. And people like Mike Pence would go to Hungary and say, this is the kind of Christian nation that, that we can become. And yeah. interestingly enough, our, our, our mainstream corporate media, you know, and even NPR doesn't, to some extent, isn't, isn't I don't think, uh, what's the word, sufficiently scientifically looking <laughs> at, at a lot of these things that are taking place right now. But, but when you look at all these meters that we're, we're talking about, um, it, it's taking a toll on, on how the United States is seen around the world, but it's also taking a toll on um, the democracy index, which we, we can talk about a few more. Too. Yeah, yeah, go, go through one or two more. I want to yeah. switch gears to some local and breaking news stuff. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Um, the Economist, which is a conservative magazine, um, rates the United States today as, as now as a flawed democracy. I mean, that's a, a, a publication out of Great Britain. Yep, absolutely. And, and you know, they cite polarization, um, threats against the press, civil society. Um, sort of like I call it the disinformation merchants gone wild. They call, the, they call the U.S. a failing democracy? <laughs> Flawed democracy. Flawed democracy. Flawed democracy, you know, and varieties of democracy. Um, Isn't democracy by definition always going to be flawed? Uh, of course, <laughs> because, you know, you have a lot of republics, right, where citizens elect representatives to write, enforce, and interpret laws. I always teach it with my students. Um, and democracy is people rule, and you can have whole classes on what it actually is. But... The biggest difference is that, you know, the Democratic Party has for decades been sort of a milquetoast center-left, center-right party, okay? It's kind of similar to MSNBC. It's economically conservative <laughs> and socially liberal, right? Or or NPR, economically conservative, socially liberal, right? In other words, we don't really have a left. A defender of the status quo. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we don't really have a left. I mean, there's all this talk about the left in the United States. I'm not really sure where it is. We but have a center. Now we have the Democratic Party and MSNBC, a public yeah. radio, sure. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, the Financial Times recently made the comment that Bernie Sanders would, would fit comfortably right in Angela Merkel's center-right, center-left, Christian Democratic, Social Democratic Party in Germany for the most part. And so, you know, but we've had, so whereas the Democratic Party stayed the same, the Republican Party in my youth was more like the conservatives in Canada and in the United Kingdom. And now we don't really have a conservative, the closest we have to a conservative party would probably be people like Chuck Schumer in Washington, D.C., but... A Democrat. Yeah, yeah, but what we have instead is a party, not me speaking, but scholars who study such things. Varieties of Democracy is, a, is an excellent one. I could give the, the website if people are interested, or maybe, Ed, you can put it on your, you know, wherever you distribute information, but vdamnot.net. They put the, the modern-day Republican Party somewhere in between the conservatives in Canada and... Um, uh, Erdogan's um, Justice and Development Party in and Turkey, how or much maybe Orban's. How much of that has to do with the rise of Donald Trump? Very little. Um, okay. Because this was a trend that began, especially in the 90s, um, when uh, the, 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 and especially during the presidency of Barack, Barack Obama, where something called mutual toleration, which is a term that a couple of Harvard professors used, started to break down. It's one thing to say that you don't agree with President Obama's health care plan, it's another to say that he's not an American and he wasn't born in this country. <laughs> right. Um, and so the treating your opponents as rivals is one thing. Treating them as existential enemies, enemies yeah, is yeah. an entirely different and, and, thing. And, and, and Trump has become a master of that. I mean, did you hear him in Iowa this past week? I mean, referring to uh, Ron DeSantis as he's like a really injured falling bird, and better yet, Nikki Haley uh, as a bird brain, and this gets even better, yeah. 
I can't remember. I think she was in Iowa. She was in a hotel, and a gift was brought to her hotel from the Trump campaign. It was a birdcage and bird food. I mean, this yeah, this is juvenile stuff. Yeah, and this is what's this is what yeah. we're getting from the leading contender for the Republican presidential nomination. Yeah, yeah I, I I tend to say that it's it's a lot of what is cast as election season is barely above the intellect of a of world wrestling entertainment. So and who do we know, blame but, for that? Well, uh, I mean, if if you had journalism and if you had reporters, um, <laughs> you know, that that really that didn't focus on the horse race, that didn't just publish what people say, <laughs> you know, rather than look at what they're saying and say, is there any validity to it? Is there any meaning to it? Right? Um, and you know, and we're more scientific. That would certainly help. But I mean, you know, so much of it is that, of course, you know this, but is the sensationalism, um, you know, trying to get clicks. I mean, really, uh, the the endorsement of of political violence, tolerating and encouraging political violence, is I think one of the more and that's what Trump has been doing and well, continues to do. and yeah. but you know, a hundred members of his party in the last midterm either were shown with guns, visibly branded guns as part of their campaign. Elected officials, yeah, yeah. You no, know, no, who were running, who were running for various oh, offices okay. across the United yeah. States. Um, or in their advertisements, they mention guns, but several of them were brandishing, brandishing well, guns. Well, and blowing up things they don't like, like like Bud Light. Well, or the RNC referring to January 6th as legitimate political demonstration. That's pretty straightforward language. I, I don't need to be, or, you know, the young man who almost beat um, the representative from California, I mean, almost beat her husband to death. Pelosi's husband. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the idea that the leading political candidate of one of the parties mocked him, not the not the per perpetrator of this who's in prison right now, but mocked and thought it was funny and that the, the people who were watching him laughed about it. Mm. That's pretty, and, that, and that that's not news? That's pretty frightening. It's news in Europe, but it's not really news here. So the Europeans are trying to figure out, like, what is going on across the pond here? You would think you know? the status quo mainstream media would want to make news out of that. Well, yeah. you know, I don't know. It feels yeah. a, a lot of it feels a lot like 2016 to me, where, no. where so many things that should not be normalized are being normalized. Yeah. Well, Jeffrey, uh, thank you uh, so much yeah. for joining us, folks. Uh, Jeffrey Weiss... Uh, uh, local professor of uh, what? What are you? Lots of stuff. Lots of stuff. <laughs> okay. Hey, when we come back, we're going to talk to another guy who knows lots of stuff. Uh, Dr. Mark Allen Derry. We're going to be looking at the intrusion of salt water into the Mississippi River and what that means for the folks living in New Orleans and other points south. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Years ago, Chef George Fromaro envisioned a new market to house all his favorite foods under one roof in the heart of Des Moines. From that vision, Gateway Market was born. Over the years, Gateway has become Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. Gateway's welcoming environment in downtown's Sherman Hill neighborhood encourages discovery and honors the simple pleasures of the table. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, experience the good food difference at Gateway Marketing Cafe. Catholic Peace Ministry was founded in 1981 to work for peace and justice. It's an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese and is guided by an ecumenical board representing many faith traditions. CPM focuses on the urgency of nuclear disarmament and the need for diplomacy in Ukraine. 
CPM also provides an educational forum about the permanent war economy, which must be challenged if we are to achieve lasting peace and justice. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks again to our sponsors and partners, including Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. Thanks also to, uh, to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has cared for all creatures great and small for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. And joining me now on the phone is uh, Dr. Mark Allen Derry. Hello, Mark Allen. How are you? Hello, Ed. How are you? I'm doing well. Good. So uh, for folks who don't know uh, Dr. Derry, he's an a, a infectious disease physician in New Orleans. Uh, our program airs on a station that he, uh, he, he manages, uh, WHIV, which is a great name for a station run by an infectious disease physician. Let me just say that. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, you, um, you've been on this program many times before, uh, certainly uh, several times during the COVID crisis. And now uh, we've got a new and troubling problem afflicting the, uh, our, southern, our neighbor to the south, uh, the, um, the in- intrusion of salt water into the Mississippi River. Uh, this could be a big problem for drinking water availability, if I understand that correctly. Yes, yes, indeed. And, and there's a climate change uh, aspect of as well because of droughts that were happening uh, just kind of north of us uh, in Mississippi valleys. The rains did not fall as they typically do. And if you go and look at the Mississippi, which I try to do pretty regularly, it's part of my walking route uh, that I that I utilize, um, you could see the waters have receded significantly. Mm. And as a result of that, uh, those the, the high waters in, in, in the Mississippi helped to keep salt water coming in from the Gulf because, of course, the Gulf uh, and the Mississippi River uh, outlet meet. And when the um, waters are low in, in the Mississippi River, what happens is that that allows salt water to come in from the Gulf. So the salt, water, are, come, the salt water comes in under the freshwater? Uh, yeah, it comes in under the, the freshwater. That's exactly right. Okay. And when there's no fresh water, right, as we are seeing right now, the salt water now becomes the dominant mm. water. But if when the, do, when the two do mix, yes, because salt water is denser, it'll fall below the uh, the freshwater and it's referred to as a wedge because uh, gravity is able to pull down that salt if you could believe that and oh, it sure. looks literally like a wedge okay and so what's happening is that um, we would potentially we are supposed to be getting salt water in about the end of October they're kind of guesstimating anywhere between October 22nd to the 28th and they could actually measure this because they could measure the so-called um, it's called the lip or the the tip of the saltwater edge is moving pretty rapidly. Um, and so the issue here is what happens when salt water gets, we are able to get that, so we get that salt water. Well, there are a couple things. One is in worst case scenarios, it could, uh, depending on the salinity of the, uh, of the salt water, it could have an effect on pipes. And of course, you can't filter out 
um, salt water, it has to go through what's called reverse osmosis. Right. So any of your like refrigerator or Brita type of things, that does not desalinate salt water. So what would happen is that um, uh, we would still be able to drink it if you needed to drink it. There will be lots of fresh bottled water around. But for people who are going to still be cooking, like let's say you're cooking pasta or or what have you, um, there could be increases in salt water, lo- uh, salt, salt intake. And my fear is that that could potentially be, you know, as a physician and as somebody who works in the hospital every day, I fear that those increases in salt uh, for people who really kind of like who have heart failure or who are on dialysis or what have you, that could be potentially problematic. And which speaking of dialysis, you know, these dialysis centers all over you know, New Orleans rely on fresh water to do the dialysis process. So you could see pretty quickly, you know, how bad this could potentially get, especially if we start talking about higher levels of salt, especially if we talk about higher levels of salt over a longer period of time. So that's kind of that defines the problem. And there are some interesting fixes that they're doing as well. But that's kind of defines the problem. Uh, we can talk about the fixes if you want as well. So New Orleans water supply is the Mississippi River? Yes. And how, how far north of the uh, tidal, tidal flow is New Orleans normally? Uh, that, oof, you got me there. You got... <laughs> okay. But norm, norm, normally quite a distance from where you encounter any salt water at all. Oh yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. I know. By by the flow of the river, I mean, if you were to drive it, we could drive. I could take you down in you know in forty five minutes. But by the flow of the river, I don't know. I, I you you have me on that one. Okay. Well, <laughs> I did, I did, quite a distance. Quite a distance. Yes. Is that the first time a an in, an inland person has ever stumped a coastal person on a on a on a, on a title question? <laughs> anyway, maybe yes. yeah. But so um the uh. The the uh, what's the worst case scenario here? I mean, is this going to keep moving upstream toward uh, toward Baton Rouge or? Well, yeah. So here's what. So what, the first thing that they're doing right now is they're building what are these called SILs. The uh, the Army Corps of Engineers are basically creating the equivalent of like speed bumps. Hmm. So that this way they go to the bottom of the, the river or they're, they're able to get to the bottom and they're building these kind of like these sills, these, they're, they're barriers, they're, bar- they're barricades rather. And, and, and what it's doing, it's just, it slows by a couple of weeks the flow of, the, of, of this salt water, but eventually we'll get here. So the way that these intakes happen is that they take from the top of the, uh, uh, these intakes take from the top of the, the river. They don't take from the bottom of the river. So the bottom of the okay. river may have a higher salinity, okay. but the water on top is the water that's, that they take from, but that itself is going to have some level of salt in there. So the other thing that they're doing is what started this weekend is that major barges of water that are coming from up from down river where they're, uh, um, I'm sorry, where they're coming from up river where the water is, uh, is fresh water. They're moving about a half a million gallons of, of, of water and they're storing it at facilities at the, uh, desalinating, uh, uh at, at the, uh, sewage and water board, uh, um, facilities and what they're going to do is they're going to use that water so when they're pulling in that salt water they're going to mix it in with these fresh water as well to help further uh, kind of dilute out that that sodium effect hmm. now you asked about worst case scenario what happens if the water stays with us for a long period of time that's the scary part <laughs> right. because once that gets into uh, our old 
uh, metal pipes, you know, and especially some of the lead pipes as right. well. One, um, the way that water flows through pipes is it creates kind of like a, a layer, kind of like a, um, you, you'll hear some of the sewage and waterboard guys refer to it as kind of like a slime layer. And that's actually very protective. And what happens is that water flows through uh, very in clean water. And in, in New Orleans, winds, I, this is crazy, but uh, one of my closest friends works at the sewage and water board. He's in charge of, of keeping the water clean. Um, he says that we actually win awards annually for how clean the water is. Hmm. And again, it's largely dependent on how that, that slime layer uh, lives inside pipes once salt water gets in there it disrupts that that layer oh. and then it starts to leach from the uh the pipes and what happens is it'll start to break down the inside of those pipes now you're going to get metal uh that's going to start flowing through the water and that's when it gets things get you know obviously okay. scary one it's it's not going to be uh, drinkable, but then two, what happens when it gets inside your fridge? If you get water from your fridge or if it gets inside your appliances, like your dishwasher or your washing machine. So appliances could be significantly affected. Right. And that's so, one of the, um, that's one of the kind of the worst case scenarios. Another worst case scenario is, is that the, the level of, uh, um, of salinity is so high that it becomes non-drinkable as well. And like I said, what if they have to turn off the pipes? Now they're saying right now that they're not going to, but if it starts to, you know, leach the inside of pipes mm. of the metal pipes, you could see how this could be problematic. Now yeah. we're not there. They're telling us this is, this is not likely to happen, but we are talking about worst case scenarios. Right. So I'm just kind of pointing that right. out, but what this really does show is Climate change. This is an example of how climate change affects, you know, cities, you know, and and because we are seeing climate changing, you know, I refer to it as climate changed, you know, so once we see that climate change, you could see how downstream, literally and figuratively, you could see how these sorts of things can affect Communities. So, and tell us how climate change is affecting the the situation specifically. Well, because we're seeing these droughts. This is all okay. the, the 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 river is 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 low because of droughts that have occurred. Mm. Droughts that have occurred as a result of climate change. We're not seeing the same rain patterns and, that we should be seeing. And our drinking water primarily is from the Raccoon River, which flows into the Des Moines River, which flows into the Mississippi River, which brings you all the nitrates that we don't want here. Uh, sorry, um, yeah, that's, that's another that's another story. We've talked about that. And that's, uh, we have talked. I, about I, that, honestly, yes. honestly, Mark, I'm still surprised that New Orleans has not sued Iowa, because we are the lowest. We are the, we are the least compliant upper Midwestern state when it comes to managing stormwater or runoff from our fields with nitrates and soil that again yes. is contributing to the dead zone in the Gulf. I'm I'm just shocked that you guys haven't sued us. Yeah, well, <laughs> our politicians are, are, you know, that would that would mean that the politicians actually care about their uh, the yeah. environment and uh, and and their people. You know, as as we were saying off air here, um, after you know millions and millions and possibly even a billion dollars being spent on um, on fixing this, right, creating these barriers and these road bumps and creating a ten mile pipeline, they're now creating a ten mile pipeline to pipe it. Uh, a fresh water. I mean, all of these fixes when, uh, you know, and then all we're going to do is turn around and continue to give tax cuts to uh, uh, to all of the platforms that are out there in the Gulf, you know, because we are an oil and gasoline state. 
we will still do the bidding of these large uh, uh, big oil and uh, uh, extraction companies, you know, that, that are creating this climate change in the first place. Yeah, well, Iowa and is so not, that's what's so frustrating. Yeah, Iowa, Iowa is not an oil and gas producing state, but our leaders seem pretty eager to appease that industry as well. Uh, sure. Which maybe makes less sense than what's happening in New Orleans. But again, we have a we, we have very significant impacts from the drought up here. Uh, but I, I don't know if that's going to change anytime soon. But the other thing is, in addition to the drought, in addition to what climate change is doing, you know, to our water supply, development pressure. We have so much development pressure right now. Uh, for example, Microsoft. I don't know if you, I don't know if you heard about the Microsoft um, warehouses. Uh, in in uh, the west side of Des Moines, but they're using 11.5 million gallons of water a month. <laughs> uh, and then you've got all these uh, suburban uh, suburban subdivisions going up. We have a, a really crush on development here. That's all demanding more water. So it's certainly the climate impact, but it's also this this commitment to this endless growth economy that yes, doesn't see yes. it doesn't recognize limits. It does not recognize that there's a limited amount of water, and certainly doesn't think about how 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 a limited amount of water affects a neighbor, what, a thousand miles to the south of us, you know? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, you know, it, it, it reminds me, you know, again, we were talking off air, and, and uh, it reminds me of, um, you know, my wife and I have been going to Europe quite a bit recently, and we were just struck by how, like, everything is just much smaller. Like, the refrigerators are smaller, the homes are smaller. Like, the, the, there's a limit, like, the... the it almost seems like the American mentality with the frontier mentality that, you know, there's no, there's no end and, and go big and what have you, uh, you know, this is start, you know, of course that that is going to ultimately reach you know, that that's not sustainable, you know, and, and, and in the way they do it, for example, in Western Europe, you know, they, they have supermarkets everywhere and you're not, they don't want you to, you know, we go to Costco once every couple of weeks and get the toilet paper and all the things in bulk so that we don't do it every day because we're going to be chained to a desk or what have you. Whereas in Europe, there's supermarkets everywhere. They, they, the packaging is small because you're not consuming that much at one time, you know? And so it, 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 it it's exactly to what you're saying. There's this commitment to big and, 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 uh, and, and more and more. And, and, and that's just not sustainable. Yeah. And I, and I, and it's hard to, it's hard to have a conversation about it because the, the, uh, the, the, the mentality that we must always continue to grow and get bigger yes. is just part of, it's an accepted part of the culture. When I was working on land use as a state legislator, you know, I, I mean, city city manager would, 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 would when I would talk about the need to control urban sprawl, they would periodically say, "Well, but if we don't grow, we die." Well, you know, that's yeah. that's not logical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well. Yeah, hundred hundred percent, and, yeah. and you know, and of course, we see it here as well. And you know, just the uh, just the other day, we were walking by a, a beautiful park in a lot that's now being uh, repurposed now to put up a building. And mm. it's just like, we can't even get green space in the middle of a city anymore yeah. because like you said, there's just constantly building, constantly building. And, and yes, all of that uses resources. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah. and now who knows what's going to happen? I mean, I'll definitely keep you up on, on this story, but we're going to, you know, New Orleans, again, I often say fun place to visit, hard place to live. Yeah. And this is well. another example of how, now, of course, this is nothing like what it was in Flint, what happened in, Flint and what's going on in Flint is terrible. We're not going to have that that depth of a crisis. But yeah. if things get in and if appliances start to be affected, that could yeah. be a potential crisis. Well, we'll see. We'll uh, we'll we'll definitely keep in touch. Um, you just gave me an idea for a new slogan for Iowa: um, "Fun place to live, hard place to visit." <laughs> <laughs> 
Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> Mark Allen, uh, thank you uh, so much for joining us. Thank you. Folks, we've been talking with Mark Allen Derry. We'll be back in a minute. Kathy Burns and I will be doing our, our, our monthly garden Q&A. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks to our anchor sponsor, Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Central Iowa's premier good food store. Gateway brings together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Market and Cafe. Hey, Kathy Burns is with me, and we are going to discuss mm-hmm. October Garden Q&A. Yes. Basically, we're going to answer your questions. But but first, but first, we we were delighted to have between I don't, we didn't count seventy five and a hundred visitors to our nonprofit urban farm on the the weekend, and we really learned a lot from people. And people come to learn a little bit about what we do, but we always have some key takeaways, and we just want to go through that real quick. Um, I I really see year to year, because this is our third year to do a harvest party, uh, there is even more interest in people growing food in their yards and less and less interest in that perfectly manicured lawn. Yeah. And my, for me, it's a, just to see how rapidly things are changing. And our biggest challenge now is heat. And this oh, is a direct yes. impact of climate change. And just talking with other people who come along, come by, to the, uh, to the harvest party and sharing their stories of what's gone well and what's gone wrong with their crops. Mm-hmm. And overall, it was a pretty good year, but there were some challenges, and a lot of them had to do with heat. Climate that change. That word, yeah. So, hey, the questions we're getting, let's see. Uh, one is about kale. Is it possible to grow kale in the winter in Iowa? Well, and, and heat-related issue, I mean, when, when the heat goes away, and it won't be too long, uh, We've not done it. Have you ever done it, Ed, grown kale in the winter? Well, we've let it winter over, but we've never actually used it in the winter. That's true. We, Someone we, Mulching it heavily, it's gotten through the winter okay. Someone was interested because they're doing some sort of a smoothie shed. 
<laughs> um, I we you know that sounds fine I don't for folks know. if they want to do it. Kale uh, smoothie does not trip my fancy. Mine but, yeah. either. So somebody, so I looked it up. We, we just didn't winter ours over. Somebody indicated that they grow kale in the garage through the winter. Mm, okay. They use a grow light, and somebody else was doing some basement kale growing. Uh, so. I would say give it a try. Sure. Why not? not? So more questions about getting ready for winter. Okay, question. Now, other than garlic, what can we overwinter in the garden? A lot of stuff. Well, uh, in the garden, we've got the uh, setup already, and you set up the cold frames. Yeah. So we grow lettuces. Um, and arugula and a couple of other greens. Maybe spinach. spinach. Maybe spinach, yeah. Uh, through well, the winter. And, and overwintering, I mean, collards. Mm-hmm. Again, with enough mulch, collards and kale will both make it through the winter. Mm-hmm. We have not had success overwintering beets. We have had success overwintering turnips as well. Mm-hmm. And, of course, parsnips. Um, that one big one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and the surprise overwintering success is artichokes. That required a really thick layer of mulch with a horse manure added in, mm-hmm. leaves on top of all that, and then a blanket. Right. And, <laughs> and it we, worked. we still have that one really nice big multi-plant, and yeah. we it's keep a, it going. It's a, the artichoke that made it through the winter is the strongest and the most attractive plant. So, Yeah. Let's um, see. We have one about asparagus, asparagus here, Kathy. I, I put out baby asparagus last spring, and it is doing well. I suppose they look like fluffy plants, not like an asparagus, but I suppose they are normal. Mm-hmm. I know that there's no harvesting for two years, but should I cut them back and cover them for winter or just cover them or what? Now, Ed, when we first started our asparagus, the first year, the second year, the third year, we were going with the wisdom that we had seen that you do when the fluffy, ferny leaves turn yellow, you cut them back for the winter. And these folks are recommending now that the first two years of growth, you leave that on till very late winter or even early spring, and then you either cut it or burn it off. Because they're saying that those ferns can continue to feed that crown of asparagus. Mm, Even in the winter. And get you some better um, produce by your third year. Well, that's one crop we've not done great at. We have not, and I wonder if that's where we went wrong. It's our fourth year, too. I know. We should have better asparagus. My son laughed at our asparagus a couple years (laughs) ago. Well, he wasn't raised right, Kathy. Well, he was raised on asparagus (laughs) from his grandparents' uh, ditch, frankly, and he knew what it should look like. So I don't know what to say about that, but... uh, Yeah, I would try. If you're just planting it, try not... You're cutting those leaves back. Uh, it's it's kind of good to burn that off. Yeah, and I've heard that. Because uh, of the asparagus yes, beetles. Yes, exactly. The asparagus beetles, right? Mm-hmm. So in yeah. the spring, you can do that in if a very carefully controlled burn. Right, one more course. question. Uh, well, I guess not a question. A note that more people than usual are reporting that their ever-bearing strawberries are producing again during the latest warm stretch. We've had quite a warm stretch in the upper Midwest. 90s. They had all, yeah, they had all kept their berries pretty well watered throughout the late summer. I don't know much about ever bearing strawberries. Well, just to note that people are reporting they're having their strawberries bear again now. They're having a resurgence of their berries. And to me, that's a testament, again, to the changing climate. Just always, you know, don't go by the old wisdom. The old, old farmer's almanac may steer you wrong. In other words, the times are changing. Yeah, the times, they are a-changing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, Kathy, uh, and yeah, one more thing about October. Just think about next spring. This is the time to plan, think about plan, spring. Plan, plan, plan. Yeah. Hey, thanks for joining us. Um, today, our guests, uh, Jeffrey Weiss and uh, Mark Allen Derry, 
Thanks to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Uh, thanks also to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, and Western Optometry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Catholic Peace Ministry, Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for our bumper music. We'll be back next week, folks, with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.